from the dead, it's Pull Request, live from the heart of Brooklyn. Pull Request is an hour-long podcast about everything in and relating to technology, starring two techno experts, Eric Newman, hi, and Chris Krabaski. Hello. This week's episode, CIA and the Cloud. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Pull Request. My name is... Eric Newman, and we are back from the dead. I am back from my trip. And uh, to my left, as always, is Chris Grabowski over the internet. Hello, how are you? I'm doing all right. How about you? I'm, uh, I've been all up and down. I I really, I, I, I mean, I don't even know how to explain exactly how I am, other than the fact that we missed two Hulk shows. We did. We did. That was not good. And, uh, it's just, you know, we, Christian, I can't, we can't build a media empire without producing regular content. So, mm-hmm. and this is part of the regular content that we produce here at, here at Pneumonium. And uh, two whole weeks, I mean, I don't know how many people, how many of our ten listeners dropped off the map. It could have been five of them. That's not good. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, anyway. Um, so let's see, two weeks, we've had two weeks off. This is technically at the end of the third week. Uh, I said I would give you guys a treat from California, and what happened was I did go, but I, uh, as you might have heard and I might have mentioned in the last pull request, I caught a cold, and I took that cold with me to California. So, um, that little throat ugh-ness turned into a giant upper respiratory infection, and then some kind of fever which prevented me from recording on the first Saturday. And then the second Saturday, uh, we just couldn't get it together. Mm-hmm. Or Sunday, sorry. We couldn't get it together. Yeah, just too many timing conflicts. I know, and when we, when we the then East have Coast, to introduce... I know, and I was going to say, and then we have to introduce the, uh, the time difference, because Pacific time, I just... Ugh. I mean, I, I, I get it if you, if, if you stay in there, and that's like your world, and you don't mm-hmm. go outside, but there's something odd. There's like, there's, I, I feel disconnected from the rest of the universe on Pacific time. Like, all the news has already happened, everything is just kind of very far away, and already over. I don't know. So, uh, since Tyler isn't here, Christian, I'm going to need a little bit more verbosity from you. Um, Okay. Anyway, are are you a fan of California? Uh, Yes, when I've been there. I've had had, uh, quite the enjoyable times there. Where uh, in California have you been? So, uh, Bodega Bay, San Fran, and Yosemite. Bodega Bay? Yes, it's uh, Is that a where town you can... about 30 minutes north of San Fran, uh, kind of a bit of a surf spot. Uh, Big Sur is not too far away. Uh, unfortunately, I happened to be there right in the uh, peak of great white mating season, so I didn't get to go into the water too much. But Oh, I, I thought when you of, said uh, great white mating maybe. season, you were talking about yourself. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> now, that's year-round. Oh, wait, that was the wrong one. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, no, and uh, I managed to see uh, a lot of California. California is a very big state. It should be multiple states, in my opinion. But, you know, we live in the region with very small states, plus New York. So it's, uh, I don't know. Um, I started off in uh, Orange County. California! Yeah, and uh, I'm not going to play the rest of it, don't worry. I mean, if you want. Oh, I, I was just seeing the South Park version. But, oh, uh, I, uh, I hate Orange County. 
I shouldn't <laughs> say. I mean, I mean, if any of our listeners are from Orange County or live in Orange County, I, uh, it, I it's a great place. Uh, but now that they're not, you know, in the room, it's it sucks. It's this contiguous suburbia south of Los Angeles, and they make a point of saying we are not Los Angeles. We're Orange County. Orange County number three. Um, <laughs> so that's behind the, of course, New York Orange County and the Florida Orange County, where I went to college. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, Florida's Orange County, by the way, used to be called Mosquito County because of the vast amounts of mosquitoes. Well, isn't that, that all of Florida? Oh, it is, but apparently, it, it was apparently really bad. So bad around Orlando that they had to call it Mosquito County. But, interesting. Interesting. Anyway, that's... But then Disney, Disney fixed that? Uh, yes. By introducing some magic smell that killed them all off? Well, um, well, Disney World, I believe, is in the county southwest of Orlando. That's really? Osceola County. Um, it's not exactly, yeah, and it's not in the city of Orlando. It's in a city called Kissimmee, um, or as I said for the first half of my life, Kissimmee. And uh, anyway, that's we're detracting from, of course. California. Anyway, um, so I had a I had a client in Orange County that I uh, I spent the first week on site with. That was really the only reason why I would go down there, and I did a lot of normal person things like have lunch at noon, and drive. Whoa. Those are... Yeah, I know. Very New York of you. Uh, it, it, felt, it felt disgusting. I don't know. Just, and it's on Pacific time. Everything is just so Oh, well, so normal. then it was more like a 3 p.m., which would be pretty normal, actually, for you. Uh, no, actually, because I have lunch at 5. Oh, wow. That is, that, that is weird even for a New Yorker. Well, yeah, but the thing is, is, is I don't go into work at 9, but then I had to... In California, because okay, I, t- well, I go into work at like going 11. Going into work at 9, I think that's more of a program. Not going into work, I should say, is more of a programmer thing than anything. Ah, well, I thoroughly enjoy not having a 9 to 5. Uh, but while I was in California and I had to be on site, they, it necessitated a real 9 to 5 with lunch at noon and driving to and fro. It's, uh, I guess it's what most of America does. And that's why I'm quite happy to live in the trash castle of New York City. Um, after Orange County, that was just the beginning. That was the first week, and then the first show that we missed. The second week uh, was really a vacation, uh, and I flew from Orange County to uh, Santa Barbara, which is somewhere on the central coast, and it's about 230 yeah, miles south of San Francisco. Tyler's not here, so he can't point to tell us where this vast, contiguous... Anyway, I went to five beaches in one week, Christian. That's, that's a lot. That's pretty much... Everywhere that isn't uh, New York City itself. Well, <laughs> I mean, I did normal. go to Coney Island the day before I left. That was I, I enjoyed that. I mean, um, that's only sort of a beach if you count the if you don't if you count, count the, the sand and the boardwalk and the ocean and the syringes. Well, don't stick your hand in the sand. <laughs> or but, step in it. Or step in it. I wore shoes. I don't know. Although that goes for the entire state of New Jersey as well. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway. Uh, no, so I went to Santa Barbara, and my sister lives uh, north of Santa Barbara, so uh, I visited her. She is on the news, on the TV news out there, Ooh. in the Central Coast News Leader. Uh, that's right, the Central Coast News Leader. I was, I was trying to do my Brian Wilson impression. Brill Williams. Sorry. Brian Wilson sounds a lot differently. I, I don't know either of them, really. Brian Williams was the NBC uh, nightly news anchor until he fabricated that story about something like with The Rock. And uh, and he got sacked. Not anyway, any bells. yeah. Well, uh, we're we're not you know over forty. So <laughs> uh, anyway, 
I saw her for a couple days, uh, chilled with her and her boyfriend in their apartment, which was kind of cool. Uh, and then I went up to Portland, Oregon, which is a state that I refuse to pronounce correctly. Um, and I enjoyed many legal things that are not legal here. Ooh. And uh, yes, it was very nice. It's the promised land because you go to a store to buy this type of stuff. And, uh, it, you know, you buy it like it's a grocery item. And it's less expensive than if you were to get it elsewhere. So, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of nice, honestly. Uh, hmm. And they have a nice selection, and they just... It's pot, okay? And they, they just legalized... It's legal over there, so why not? And they just legalized edibles. And uh, so you could really have a fun hmm. time in Oregon. But the, much like California, the people are insufferable. Hmm. After Portland, which was a couple days, um, and I actually watched some television, more normal things... I uh, found a couple oh. new shows that are, are actually good. I highly recommend Baskets. That's by Louis C.K. and Zach Galifianakis. Oh, yes. That is a great show. It is. I was much better than I thought it was going to be. And something that is not as good, but still pretty decent for what it is, uh, The Good Place on CBS. It's a Michael Schur show. And it I don't believe a- I've seen that. It's, it's, uh, it's good for a network sitcom, and it has a lot of people from Parks and Rec and Kroll Show in it. Plus Ted really? Danson. Yes. Interesting. Very interesting. So, uh, yeah, and it, it's kind of, I mean, it has, it's kind of predictable. The characters are a little flat because it is, of course, a network sitcom. But mm-hmm. that's why I said for what it is, it's actually not bad. Uh, and does look modern. It's not a four-camera shoot with a laugh track. You know, it's actually shot like it's hmm. made in the 21st century. So uh, I recommend both of those. But as I got back, it was much harder to finish watching them because of my ADD life. On the right side of the country. Anyway, uh, Portland was basically that. Uh, hiked around a lot. Uh, and then I ended my journey in San Francisco. Interesting. Of the cities that I've seen, or had seen on the West Coast, I really enjoyed San Francisco. Um, really? I feel like... Uh, as a relative uh, term, wait, I When you were out. talking about it before, you pictured it as a city of just a bunch of me's. It would be a bunch of us's. Okay. You know, the spectrum is a spectrum for a reason. Um, <laughs> but. Interestingly, I just saw the South Park episode about San Fran today. Hmm. You know, the one where they uh, smell the parts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I ran into a couple of native San Franciscans. It's interesting because uh, it, it was a nice reprieve from the very kind of slowed down, we don't really care what time stuff gets done, lack of urgency West Coast people. Um, it was a slightly more urban field. People did walk most places, and they have. Hmm kind of a subway that I didn't use because it really didn't go anywhere that I wanted. Isn't it like three trains? There's the Muni uh, and the BART. And the BART, I've been told, is like the Long Island Railroad. And the Muni it- is like a subway. And they're both kind of intertwined, though. And I'm not entirely sure. It's not like New York, where you could get on a train. You know? No, if anything, like- this sounds like Canadian public transit. Does it? I think Montreal had a pretty good metro. It, they do, but but it just it, it it's probably the name. Ah, anyway, uh, yeah. So San Francisco, uh, I San Francisco and New York is very interesting because they have. I feel like the, culturally they're both kind of going to this certain equilibrium of increasing gentrification, perpetual gentrification, perpetual. Well, what's interesting is in both increases. areas, uh, housing prices are down. Really? Yes. Well, they're down at about both egregious levels i mean i the airbnb that i was staying in 
was possibly, I think it was about 20% bigger than my apartment, and uh, it was like 3500 bucks a month. And it was Oh, you're always going to find more space uh, anywhere outside of New York. It's, it's just, interesting, uh, though, because there's a lot of houses. Like, there are a lot of... Yeah, there's a lot, very residential. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And is, there's a lot of literal houses instead, instead is, of high-rises. There is no city more urban than New York in the U.S., at least. I wasn't expecting there to be, but I was, I, I was just kind of surprised with how, how many literal houses were in San Francisco, in the city proper. And the west side of San Francisco, I ended up walking about 30 miles in two days in San Francisco. The mm. west side of San Francisco, is, you can't even, like, there's not even a, a bodega. Like, the, it just, you have to really have a million-dollar house, and then bodega you drive. Bodega's a real New York concept, you know. <laughs> okay, there's not a corner store where you can get a bottle of water when you're outside. No, I know. That, that is something that at is night. primarily the very urban areas, to the point where it's in abundance here in New York, but in most other cities, you gotta be in, the, like, the real heart of the city to see that. Right, right. Uh, but I did, you know, see the Golden Gate Bridge and took many pictures of that and oh, walked yeah, around beautiful. it. Uh, it was did really... You, uh, did you uh, at least drive past, um, what's that island there? Um, Alcatraz? No. Yes. I saw it, but I didn't, I didn't really get outside of San Francisco. Um, I didn't go to Berkeley. That's next time. I, want, I, I can take the bar to Berkeley. But, I also recommend um, Palo Alto. Maybe or Palo Alto. Uh, VCs over there. I'd love to figure out how to get to Petaluma, where uh, Leo Laporte's Twit Network is, the gold standard of podcasts and technology podcasts. And, uh, but I think I have to drive which is a non-starter since I, I, uh, I mean, I ended up driving two rental cars while I was in California, but by the time I got to San Francisco, I was just walking around. So anyway, uh, it was fun, and uh, I think Portland won for best food, though I didn't really... That's ex- usually what I hear. I hear Portland they, has great food. They have fantastic food, and it, a lot of it is eclectic. It's, uh, but a lot of, like, everyone in Portland, and this is the possibly double edge of the legal weed sword uh everyone seems like they're really high no kidding i'd imagine that's the no case. but i mean you know i would call myself an advanced user i think tyler is an advanced user but the the, the just the the space cadets in, in portland are on another level um and then in san francisco i'm, I'm leaving to take to take a giant step back on my uh, flight out of jfk when I was going to Long Beach, some guy walked on the plane with, with spiked bangs, hugging oh, yeah, a yoga mat. <laughs> What's up, bro? Oh, yeah, I know where we're going now. Definitely going to California. Oh, and, are you sure it was California and not the Biodome? <laughs> with Pauly Shore. I'm uh, glad you knew what movie I was talking about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know his mom, Pauly Shore's mom, is a quick tangent, owns uh, the comedy store, I think. That's why he's famous. He's a really? famous, yeah, he is a famous mother. Um, and that's a franchise in, in uh, L.A., too. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, no, what was I going to say? Uh, San Francisco and New York have this problem, though, with a bunch of people flooding in who aren't originally from the area, sucking out all the culture while raising the rents egregiously. You and know preventing... what that reminds me of? What? New York. That's what I just said. You didn't mention New York. I did. I said San Francisco and New York both have this problem. Of a massive people. You said people. like San Fran and L.A. or something like that. No, I, no, no. We can rewind the tape, but then that will actually be included on the podcast. So we, no. Anyway, San Francisco and New York, okay, have a very similar issue where they have all these people flooding in who aren't from the area, 
sucking out all the culture, raising all the rents, and leaving the city uninhabitable for the people who really should be there. Uh, but the difference is this. Native Californians are... Oh, they're just... They're, it's not... I don't even know how to explain it. I already used insufferable. That's the word I've been using typically. Um, the native New Yorkers are, are my kin. You know, they're real salt-of-the-earth people uh, that I, uh, are fading away into Staten Island in New Jersey. And uh, <laughs> it's... Yeah, and uh, they will be pushed out of there too. And it's just... I, I, I don't know. It's, that's, the only, that's the big difference, is that the natives in both cities are opposite in terms of culture. Uh, so I really shed fewer tears about people in San Francisco being pushed out. But uh, anyway, so that's that 15 minutes in. That's the whole synopsis of my trip. And it was two weeks. And if we had done shows for those two weeks, this recanting would not have been as long. So um, now we can get into, uh, into the show a little bit. This week's show is about CIA and the cloud. And, yes, uh, the CIA, as many of you have heard over the last week, well, it's not actually the CIA themselves, WikiLeaks, uh, the leaking organization uh, that I believe, is it still, is, does Julian Assange still run WikiLeaks, or is it kind of its own thing now? Well, that is not really clear. That's not really clear. Yeah. Uh, both he and Snowden do have dead man switches, so they will release a bunch of extra information that nobody's seen if they ever get if they ever get canned. Um, so but, are they doing that the way that's really tedious but really smart, where every day they have to log in and say, "Don't do this yet"? Right. I'm sure that's how they're doing it, or maybe they have it done by a Twitter API. I don't know, because uh, I know that uh, Assange was tweeting out some like uh, CRC hashes of something. Like, right before a giant dump was, uh, was given. Anyway, so Wikipedia has a new dump of data, and that's from the CIA. And they I mean, call... WikiLeaks. Right? Sorry, WikiLeaks, yes. And they call it uh, Year Zero. And part of Year Zero, as I try to navigate, is this thing called uh, Vault 7. And I don't know... I don't know if there was... I don't think there was a Vault 6, but Vault 7 does sound a lot cooler of a name. And it says uh, that Vault 7 is a series of WikiLeaks releases on the CIA and the methods and means they use to hack, monitor, control, and even disable systems ranging from smartphones to TVs to even dental implants. The Vault 7 leaks themselves can be found right here on WikiLeaks. So far, the first released in the Vault 7 series has been titled Year Zero and includes a number of breaches the CIA's Intelligence Operations Center... Oh, it includes a number of branches, not breaches, sorry, of the CIA's Intelligence Operations Center and their projects. One of the things that we've seen in Vault 7 is that um, the CIA paid for a site license for Sublime Text, the ever-popular um, text editor, and I believe those CD gotten, keys work. Uh, oh, I'm sure. I've gotten... Uh, Prior employers have paid for my Sublime uh, license, but for any of those who haven't used Sublime, it is just nagware. If you're okay every once in a while when you hit save, uh, having to be bugged about uh, potentially paying for this, then if as long as you can ignore that, then uh, it's technically free. 
Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's my favorite text editor. It handles a lot of open files really well, has a great support community, has very good plugins and themes. Much better than Atom, which is a ripoff made by GitHub. And, wow, this uh, sounds a lot like Vim, though. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, but you can use a mouse. And, so you, uh, you can with Vim, too. You need a plugin for it, but you can. I mean, you can plug in your way with Vim but to a Sublime. Why would you need a mouse, though? Do I actually use the mouse that much? Like, I, I hate using the mouse. I hate taking yeah. my hand off the keyboard. No, you know, I actually, uh, I don't really use the mouse that much. Yeah, exactly. Sublime. But I do like the layout more. Than, you can get that exact Because you don't have, you no, know, but you don't, you can't really do projects well in Vim. Oh, yeah, you like, can. You can? Yeah. All right, you well, then get... you'll have to show me the way. But again, like. File trees. Uh, uh, what? File trees. You got a tree of the file. Or, no, sorry, but, a, a, tr- a tree of the directories. But the point is that um, you're gonna, you can install enough plugins to make Vim like Sublime, or you can just download Sublime text. But Yeah, but then you're running a whole Python script and a bunch of other stuff. And aren't you doing that each time you install a Vim plugin? Vim is uh, much lighter weight, though, and it uses its own uh, language to run the actual plugins, and they're all based off of these uh, little C modules. Well... I think Vim is too fancy. I prefer Ed for my Bell Labs Unix mainframe from the 60s. Anyway, sorry for hitting the mic stand. Um, So there's another text editor that is very popular, uh, but it's only for Windows, and it's called Notepad++. And in fact... Oh, so I remember the first time I was told about Notepad++. It was my first day of college computer science, and when we were told to use a text editor... The options were uh, Vim, Gedit, or Notepad++ if you're on Windows. Yeah, developing on Windows has been a real pain until, oh, until, until recently. recently. Yeah, And they it, have that new Visual Studios Lite or whatever it is. Um, I'm, not, I'm not using The one that. that's like a sublime, but Visual Studios. Right. Everything that exists, Microsoft, and Microsoft is the historic Me Too company. Everything that exists, Microsoft has to have a version of it. And, of course, that version is much worse than whatever they originally were copying. Yeah. Try running Docker on it. It's pretty interesting. (laughs) uh, But, you know, they have the Unix subsystem now, so it might actually not... I don't know. It might actually work well. That apparently is pretty cool. Uh, The thing I I was complaining about, though, is running native Docker, which you can't also run a VM at the same time. What? You can't run a VM and native Docker at the same time? Yeah, you can't run native Windows Docker, which also native Windows Docker only runs Windows containers, so you can't have like a Linux container. But uh, in addition to that, you uh, can't be running a, uh, like, um, what is it, Hyper-V VM while uh, you're running a a Docker container. Interesting. Why? Uh, Just Windows? This is not entirely clear, but I do know, like, like Linux, it, uh, the the VMs and uh, well the hypervisor I should say specifically the hypervisor uh, that's built into the kernel and uh, containers uh, share a lot of um, what, what's the way I should put it um, lower uh, components uh, I can't really speak in too much detail about the Windows side but in Linux that's the C groups and the namespaces and the true and and I guess Windows just does, doesn't have those yet or doesn't have uh, abstractions for those well, yet in their units. Well, th- this is the same thing in Linux, except Linux is smart enough to say you can run these separately. Like, if you look at KVM, while it doesn't use namespaces for isolation, it uses its own hardware virtualization that uh, it relies on separately, 
it still uses C groups to actually isolate the hardware itself to uh, certain resources. And what is a C group exactly? It's saying I want like uh, this amount of time on this uh, CPU or th this amount of cores or I want this much memory or uh, I want uh, to uh, have this much network I.O. in uh, some of the newer kernels. Gotcha. Well, to get back to Notepad++, uh, their developers recently found something startling hidden inside their executable. Let's hear it from our news department. Nobody on presents news to you. The internet, Wednesday, March 8th. The developers of an ever-popular text editor called Notepad++ recently found a plethora of undocumented exploits or a hack baked into the executable for the program. Uh, <coughs> sorry. Uh, a plethora of undocumented exploits or hacks added to various DLLs or dynamically linked libraries essential for the program's use. Though added to a text editor, the CIA doesn't seem to care about your skillet programming. Rather, it uses 21st century exploit technology to monitor your behavior and send all your data back to Langley. Notepad++ has been patched to remove the CIA exploits, though it may not stop future attempts at introducing or intruding into your text editor. What does this mean for computer security going forward? Only time will tell. And so many Americans are afraid of what happens next. We at least know the world still turns and the truth marches on. That's why this has been News to Use. Brought to you by Pneumonia. It's always a DLL, isn't it? DLL hell. They, yeah. They call it. Well, uh, with Windows, it's surprising that they're so against static binarings because that's where a lot of issues are... Uh, but then, well, a lot of these specific issues with Windows are prevented by statically linked binaries as opposed to dynamically linked binaries. But then you have to which, copy all the stuff, right? If you're sharing a resource uh, that could be used between multiple programs, it would be so copied. It, it really depends. And the answer is yes, from uh, uh, in a most literal sense. But in the sense of what are you using in a more situational way, it does make a lot of use to have a static binary. Like um, in the Go world, uh, in both... Uh, Windows and Linux and OS X, the Go binaries are compiled statically unless you're using like un underlying C libraries. Mm. And those are ni nice to be able to move around and they are secure in the sense that you can't just change the name of a library and have that be loaded dynamically by accident, which can be the case with dynamically linked. Well, Although with this, that, though, that is a thing you can do in Go now with plugins. They so just like rewrote the DLL with injected code that uh, monitors your behavior. They put like a oh, rootkit yeah, sure. in it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the easy way to protect against that is to have the developers actually check for a hash, but then that program has to always know what that hash is. And if that program can be edited, then... Well, if this is the source that gets compiled to the main binary that isn't being loaded from the DLL, that is pretty hard to edit. Uh, you have to have somebody who can actually take binary, change that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I would expect the people at the CIA... To be smart enough to do that. But let's take a break. Quick break. I'm talking about our wonderful CIA, uh, the people that I love so much and hope to never piss off along with the IRS um, or the FBI. Anyway, all those three-letter organizations. I love you dearly and anonymous. Uh, let's talk about how to screw things up on the internet. So mm -hmm. uh, one of the shows that we missed, it was uh, two weeks ago, uh, there was a huge problem where Amazon's 
simple storage solution? Was it two weeks? I believe it was one week ago. No, because we were going to do it on the... Uh, I think it was. Anyway, S3 was down. Amazon's yes. simple storage service. It had an outage, and as many people, and as Amazon and many people migrate to the cloud, and companies like Amazon create quote-unquote clouds, there's this expectation for them to always be there. And the way that they do that is in the famous bumper sticker, it's not, there is no cloud, it's just somebody else's computer. Uh, Amazon uh, has a bunch of computers in a data center, their servers, in a data center, and multiple data centers that are replicated uh, for redundancy. So, and then, wait, hold on, hold on. And your data uh, may reside on one server in their data center, and if you set it up properly, and that's the key, you have to set it up properly for, re- for replication, uh, that if you do set that up, then when, if U.S. East goes down, then you'll be brought right back up with U.S. West, but that creates a bunch of other problems. Um, so because so you're, oh. you're leaving out a few details about S3 that are important. Okay, fill me in. This. Uh, a big one. For, wait, I'm I, sorry. First, do you want? Because uh, I kind of like that we had that music last week. Do you want some music when you talk, or, or do you want? Uh, just... I think uh, with the amount of detail I'm going into, it's kind of just easier to focus without it. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, so I guess I'll work backwards from what you're saying. Uh, with the uh, so you're talking about uh, re- replicating across regions, which is great to have, and you should definitely do. I would also recommend re- replicating across vendors, so also using uh, like Google Storage or hosting your own Ceph or Gluster. Uh, and how, is, how do you do that? Is there a good interface to replicate across these kind of disparate vendors of data centers and cloud services? So it really depends on how quickly you need your data replicated. If you have very critical data that needs to be uh, accessed in real time, uh, the best bet is to actually uh, do some very hacky fuse mounting where you have some local disk somewhere on an actual uh, server you have more control of than an object store. And then that fuse mounts into the object stores and just kind of functions at a uh, sub-user space uh, replication. If you're um, a little less time sensitive, you can either uh, just have a script that uh, when you do upload to S3, it also uploads to another one. Or if it's uh, uh, something like you're writing to S3 primarily, you didn't want to change all the code, but then you want it backed up, you can have like a nightly rsync to another object store. But basically you're saying that you have to be the glue between these services. And there's no, there's no uh, like meta service for this type of stuff like there is for migrating data between CMSs. Is there? Because, uh, so... you know, there are services that are like for, for CMSs, which are entirely mm-hmm. different, I know. But so there, there were. Well, hold on, hold on, because they're, they're like, I have, you know, WordPress. I'm moving to Drupal. Uh, here's the login credentials. Suck out my data, and then give me a package that I can upload into the into the destination. So it's, a, it's a lot easier than that because it's not very vendor specific. An object store, you can treat it like a file system, even though it's a little bit different than a natural file system. But you still have to manually as... do move the stuff. You have to set up the rsync. You have to set up the cron jobs for all that stuff. You have to do it. Yes. Uh, l- Basically, uh, that it, you used to have to do. But well, uh, for most people who are managing uh, things that uh, are large enough that they warrant using AWS, I would at least hope they're uh, capable of using rsync. Like our podcast. We're not using yeah. rsync, but we are big enough to use AWS and S3. Yeah. Well, we're not backing up, which shame on us. Well, I mean, we are, you know, I mean, we have, we have backups. They're just not mm-hmm. on Amazon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Why do I keep hitting but, the mics? I need to fix the setup. 
in my <laughs> room studio. So the other thing I was going to say, though, is it is replicated across machines um, in, a, in a way. It's actually using, uh, well, I don't know the details of S3, but it can either be doing this, uh, it's probably a, you're doing a few different ways of uh, distributing the data. There's uh, mirroring, which uh, can be done in RAID or user space to save multiple machines out of the exact same piece of data. And then there's balancing, which is to say, take blocks of a, cer a certain piece of data and distribute it across multiple servers. That way, when one goes down, the, uh, those other blocks get moved to another server or, uh, and can be done through error correction. That's usually done in RAID. There's a lot of different versions of RAID. Uh, so you have this, uh, the ones that actually split up the data. And then you have the mirroring, where the mirroring is a lot, a lot uh, ensures uh, your uh, data integrity a bit better. If one machine goes down, there's a mirror somewhere else. Right. But, uh, and, and the yeah. uh, balancing, I guess, is kind of like what a Drobo does, but on servers. Yeah. Good. And uh, so because so many services have moved to S3 and S3 has had very minimal outages so far, I think. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in recent years. Re when yeah. they first started. Well, I mean, how old are they? Uh, they're, they've been around since like 08. Really? Yeah. Huh. And, I guess starting uh, so out, they were probably early, as reliable as Twitter. Early on, uh, their two backbone services actually went down, EC2 and S3. Ooh. Yeah. That basically means no AWS at the time because everything else is built on top of that. So Which we... brings me to a great point of eating your own dog food. A lot of people are looking at this like, oh, you shouldn't eat your own dog food because their response said, uh, they, they basically, uh, one service that uh, everything else depended on uh, went down, and then it also brought down another service. These two were pretty much the backbones of S3 itself. And the big problem there is you left it to a single point of failure where you can't have that knockover and everything else survive, or you can just bring that right back up uh, without depending on itself. So it was kind of this circular dependency of a single point uh, of failure that really shot them in the foot, including to the point where they couldn't update their status page. Ouch. Not even the status page. Yeah, they store their status icons in S3. Of so. course, because it would be redundant. But this is, Which, no, this is exactly why you should dog food your, your stuff. Uh, unless, of course, you have some kind of special rules for internal traffic, which they might. Uh, who knows? But this happened. Oh, so, we, so a lot of services went down because of this. Uh, mm -hmm. The internet itself may have been a little slower. Um, uh, I would say the internet itself. But was, you had a lot of pretty uh, major services go down. Is uh, this as like bad that. as Dyne? Uh, or was this, rather? I would say for certain companies, it looks as bad. It really depends on it. Like uh, where I work, we don't have an S3 dependency. Uh, we do uh, use AWS for other things, but uh, S3 specifically, we uh, we do use it, uh, just not well, for anything that we are actually uh, delivering. Can I mention where you work? Uh, I was going to make a joke about the name. Let, let me uh, run that by... Uh, them sometime max blake uh, on yeah okay um yeah. anyway so what happened with uh s3 is so trello docker hub and many uh package mm -hmm. manager repos and other aws yeah, so services de deploying became a pain for us well way, yeah. first let's take a step back because this is something that i didn't really understand until until recently actually until we set up this podcast um aws is kind of an umbrella for a lot of different services provided by amazon yep. uh one of them is s3 uh, they have mm -hmm. another one, um, EC2, that's Elastic Containers? No, that's Elastic Compute. Compute. ECS okay. is the Elastic Containers. Gotcha. And EC2 allows you to run operations across uh, varying amount of servers. Hence uh, Elastic. Well, no, it, it's an actual uh, VM that they deliver you, specifically a Zen VM. So, so they deliver you a VM... But that VM is is not is is like a is like a cloud. 
Right. It's a it's a cloud computer. It's a cluster. Which are mo- most most VMs these days you can look at as cloud computing because uh, the way they're set up is they're API driven, and they have that if this specific host computer goes down, that VM gets migrated to another server, which is kind of where that logic of the cloud comes rather than just running on a VM. But if you wanted to, I thought the idea of elastic computing was that you, if you wanted to run an operation across um, different or different types of operations, if you wanted something that was like utilized many GPUs versus CPUs, then you oh, could yeah, that, have a cloud. Be, is awkward. that what this is? So the reason why it's called elastic is because you can spin up a lot uh, very quickly, which uh, is more be- uh, the idea behind things like auto scaling. But that's based still... on metrics, you can just listen to say, "Hey, I need more computer, I need more VMs, or I need less VMs." But that's still, the VM is still running basically on one computer. It's just that that VM, if it goes down, will be migrated seamlessly to another computer. Correct. Interesting. Okay. Um, what else do they have? They have CloudFront? CloudFlare is a C- CDN. Yes. CloudFront is for this static is very web hosting. They're both, the, the CloudFlare is a company that offers a CDN. CloudFront is AWS's uh, CDN. Right. And both of them are the cloud, but not. Uh, but yeah, CloudFront is their static web hosting. I believe we will be using that in the future for our website. Well, it's a CDN, so Content Delivery Network, where you, it oh, is you can serve delivering. static files. But can you? Yeah. But I believe you can also serve things like PHP files from it uh, that get interpreted. Um, it's possible. I wouldn't be surprised if part of their CDN is an nginx instance that supports like F- PHP FPM, or they, or it's an nginx instance that just says no PHP. That would be safer. <laughs> would be safer. Uh, anyway, so this S3 outage happened when a member of S3's DevOps team, make a lot of money, typoed a command to debug their billing process, resulting in the indexing service to be brought down. And then the placement service followed. What's the placement service? The placement service was the service that was actually uh, saying, based on a certain thing of data, uh, I should place it here. Uh, uh, because of the resources or uh, spread it out amongst a few things, uh, what have you. And then it would actually uh, put uh, right back to the uh, indexing service to say, okay, it's here now. And then the indexing service would kind of just keep a key value store of knowing where uh, the uh, blocks of the object store are. But those those services, do they run on a single computer? Do they themselves run on a cluster? So those those are, uh, they are eating their own dog food. Uh, They are running on EC2 instances. Okay. That's, that's good, right? I mean, unless EC2 goes down. Which can be good, but the indexing service requires S3 for certain things, and that was a big problem there, so they had to kind of undo that dependency oh, of the indexing service requiring, requiring S3, S3 while indexing to, S3, right? De- well, to de- deploy a new indexing service. Oh, it's, one, it's like how you write a compiler for a programming language that hasn't been written yet. Uh, well, that's kind of like how you get started, and then a lot of compilers are written in their own language that's more like this right oh that's what i meant yeah. like lisp like most compilers i would oh. say these days well, i never understood and i we're getting on a tangent but i never understood like how you could write a lisp compiler in lisp if it hasn't been compiled ever before if so it doesn't start out with that you have to th- you have to write like a bootstrapper in c square, or something right square one uh well square one of any of these started out in assembly obviously like uh, the oh, original c, duh, c right. compiler probably was written in assembly and then from there, you can rewrite the entire thing in C to be able to compile the new version. Uh, uh, so you can, I think Go is a great example of this. It has uh, 
since version 1.5, they've been on a, a very big push to remove all of its C. At uh, Go 1.8, the only C that's really in there isn't actual C code so much as using Go's uh, C, uh, C Go specifically uh, to actually support like um, certain syscall related things. That so basically, what you're saying is that uh, you don't start out writing the compiler in the language that it's in, but you, you eventually get there. Yes. Okay, that really clears it up, because that was a major uh, uh, hang-up in my bottle. Uh, my, my, my mind was bottled. It's a, it's a chicken in, uh, in the egg. It is, it question. is. Yeah. Anyway, back to S3. Um, so the indexing service went down, placement service went down, uh, disabling the ability to accept HTTP, HTTP traffic on S3. Oh, and then those, those both, sorry, it was a comma, disabled the ability to accept HTTP traffic on S3. Uh, then due to S3 recursively depending on itself, which you just mentioned, the S3 t- team had quite some difficulty bringing the servers back, as well as updating the status page again. So, when you said that the, the status page went down, that was, that was, this is the second time that happened, right? Because the first time was when we, no, when we talked about earlier. Time. Oh, this is that, that time. time. Yeah, and that time was last week, or two weeks ago. Ouch. Well, at least, you know, at least Amazon's doing well with uh, Top Gear. That's true. Well, yeah. that's a separate division. But uh, one thing I would compare uh, the eating your own dog food to is you look at something like uh, Kubernetes uh, is one that I think is really cool, uh, where recently there's been this big push to have a self-booting version where you start out with one particular part of Kubernetes that spins up the rest of it, and then if any one part goes down, it can still bring back the rest of it. Okay. Interesting. Um, so, uh, the good, S3 came back online with minimal data loss. If customers had a secondary object so- store and smart DNS, <coughs> like where you work, mm-hmm. uh, they could switch with zero downtime. Really? Zero downtime? So, uh, not zero in the most literal sense, but zero downtime in a more humanly noticeable sense. And so, virtually seamless. Yes, so uh, what it would look like is uh, the DNS uh, has a health check or some kind of uh, metrics feed going into it. And then from there, if uh, it uh, detects, hey, either uh, things are starting to fail or, or not look so good or it did fail in its health check, po- uh, point me to a different IP address all of a sudden. But, oh, right, 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 with a very low TTL. Yeah. Okay. That, okay, that also makes sense. Because then you could just be going to a cached record that uh, mm-hmm. is bad. So, yeah. so uh, with, with the place that you work, which we are unsure if we could say the name, but I have a really funny joke that would have been relevant if we could. Oh, well. Uh, the place where you work, um, they do this kind of dynamic DNS stuff mm-hmm. where it, they will, they, they will uh, determine the latency or the ping time between you, wherever you are geographically and the endpoint. And then mm-hmm. it will figure out which of the DNS servers gets you there in the fewest hops or just the shortest time, fastest mm-hmm. route. Um, but my question is, let's say I'm using your service and then I, like I did uh, two weeks ago, fly to California. And it still thinks my computer still has that cached record from being in the Northeast, U.S. East. And uh, now I'm in U.S. West. And how does it know, you know, if you have a, it, it, would be, it could be cached for days. Your local DNS client will actually see that uh, your state has changed, particularly geolocation is something that uh, most modern uh, DNS clients do take into account to say, hey, clear the cache. 
particularly if your uh, wireless network has changed. I was going to just ask, so whenever you change a Wi-Fi network, does that actually clear your DNS cache too? It sh- I guess that would make um, sense. Not immediately, but uh, uh, when uh, your DNS client is uh, kind of questioning whether or not to clear the cache, it usually takes that into account. Gotcha. gotcha. It depends on the DNS client and how you have it configured and whatnot. Interesting. So, uh, so if they had a multi-region setup or if they had a, a, your smart DNS, then they would not have had this type of outage because it would have virtually seamlessly uh, failed over Excuse me, mm-hmm. to another region or another vendor. Mm-hmm. Correct. And uh, how much does somebody who uh, works at Amazon's DevOps team, probably, I guess, in Seattle, how much do they get paid? Uh, we could possibly not be exactly Amazon's favorite people for disclosing uh, what I mean, do you know? I um, have known through things like Glassdoor and uh, certain well, job it's boards. It's basically public information. Everyone it kind of is, Glassdoor. I guess. Uh, it's ballpark of anywhere from like 140 to, uh, depending on how senior you are, you are, 180. Like if you're like a team lead, you're probably at like 180. Uh, that's right. That's, that's not bad. No, that's pretty good. I uh, one of my friends that I met in San Francisco does uh, DevOps, and he's making about a buck fifty. And uh, yeah, it sounds about right. I need to get. I need to. I need to get out of designing websites. Yeah, design work. Uh, yeah. You know, I enjoy it so much, but nobody cares. Nobody, nobody, and if anybody cares now, fewer fewer people will it's, care in the future. It's hard to be. It's hard to be efficient, and it's hard to argue that there's a. How long con- did it take to paint the Sistine Chapel, Christian? Huh? That. So there, there's actually, that. Th- that was a joke, but, actually, because I think it took uh, like twenty years. But that's another. Yeah, story. but it, it is the case though that uh, once there is a design out there, h- how soon are you going to need an updated design? And well, if you do a good job on the design, and you don't just make something that's that's incredibly trendy, so then when the trends change, it becomes incredibly out of date, mm-hmm. uh, and you don't use the stock designs for WordPress or Drupal or or Bootstrap, right? Uh, well, this is what this is what I'm saying. Because if you have a good design, you're not going to need to update it so quickly. There's less of a uh, demand as opposed to somebody who is basically keeping the lights on like a DevOps uh, engineer. Right, and I have previously put myself out of a job that way, but... I I don't know. It's it's I like creating. I mean, pneumonium dot com. That design I came up with, I think, in twenty ten, and seven years on, it really does not. I mean, I'm speaking for myself, of course. I'm biased and I'm you know very narcissistic, but uh, it doesn't look like it's seven years old. Parts of the website do, like the fact that it's not really responsive. It does scale the height, but it's not a real responsive website. That's because it was made in you know twenty ten. And um, and that 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 part I could clean up, but the design of it. If I just redid it with modern, uh, with standard, you know, contemporary display technologies, uh, I wouldn't have to change the design at all. And it's it's that type of thinking that I don't know. It's it 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 cre- it. I'll I'll put it to you this way: people's attitudes about designs have bred such conformity in the landscape that people believe that. Uh, Trends are rules, and mm-hmm. and we, we you and I well you and I uh, got into this argument back in the room that days mm-hmm. um, when I was vehemently and still am, uh, but vehemently against 
having an app where you have your row of icons at the bottom and you have a hamburger button on the top right that opens a basement menu well, and I you think, have your logo at the top. And well, I'm I think so uh, we sick. stay on topic. I'll just express oh, my viewpoint pretty quickly. I'm sorry. With, yes, uh, we, this, this is a rat hole. I'm, I apologize. People, people like the trendy stuff. It, it works for a reason. Yes, but it goes, but it, that's not even really a trend. That was just like Apple's boilerplate app design, and then people said, "Oh, I could do that." And then L, so many people did that well, when someone like me comes if, around, well, if you don't really follow Apple's boilerplate app design, you don't get accepted into the App Store. I think that plays a big part. I disagree, because there are apps and games that have a completely different interface. Well, games uh, are a different argument, but if you're an actual app that requires a menu bar, they uh, at least when we were on room that we were looking at the rules. They required an actual hamburger button menu we bar. Ha- I mean, yes, but you could... I think it's honestly based on the accessibility of the app. If they can't yes. figure out where you're going, then they're not going to approve the app. Oh, absolutely. The yeah. app that we designed, or where I designed, is around a cube. And instead of having five mm-hmm. sections, four sections of uh, four icons at the bottom, you could just change the face of the cube, and that was another section. And we had one mm-hmm. button that went to the top, and then from the top, you could get to any other section. And then you logged I, out by going to the bottom. I'd and, hate to in- interrupt you, but uh, we should probably stay on topic. I could make more money and care less. Maybe I should do that. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> that's, you know, that's, that's the truth. Um... Okay, let's see. Uh, you want, so, are we, you want to put the, you want to say we're done with uh, S three? Uh, I'd say yeah, we're done with S three. We went pretty well through. Uh, yeah, let's move on to Cloudflare. Okay, Ooh, so um, this is not as we mentioned CloudFront, which was Amazon's <clears throat> uh, CDN service. This is another CDN service called Cloudflare that you may have seen while accessing popular websites that are over overcome with bandwidth or traffic pains. Um, uh, well, I'd just say most companies use Cloudflare as a CDN who see um well i meant like the fan of traffic oh no that's what i I meant like if you've uh i've seen i've i've seen a couple of these you know your site is unavailable cloudflare oh yeah yeah, like you know 500 or 502 error pages anyway that's what i was talking about Uh, oh that's the reverse proxy which is where this specific issue we're talking about was found reverse proxy yes oh man like an nginx that's like something in fact when cloudflare first put this product out it was in fact a fork of nginx huh so this guy Tavis Ormandy from Google's mm-hmm. Project Zero. What was Project? Wasn't that Project Zero? Wasn't that the uh, balloon internet? Um, no, that was Moonbeam. I think something. Yeah, Project Zero, I believe, was a security uh, a push for uh, security, more secure internet. Uh, I believe, yeah, it was like a it's like a team of uh, security a- analysts, if I recall. Anyway, who uh, try to find zero day exploits? Ah, and that's I guess. Also why Wiki, WikiLeaks, I almost said WikiLeaks, like Wikipedia. Uh, that's probably why WikiLeaks has named their thing Year Zero, for the zero mm-hmm. as in zero-day exploits. And what yeah. is, for our listeners at home, what is a zero-day exploit, Christian? Well, they should listen to one of our earlier episodes about that. But Okay, and they can that, do that by going to pullrequest.net slash podcast. Mm-hmm. Anyway. But that, a zero-day exploit is a exploit within software that has not been made public yet. Therefore, a hacker could actually exploit the app itself uh, in zero with uh, zero days to respond to it. So that's where the zero comes from. It's the number of days between when the exploit is uh, executed and the people who are being attacked have to respond. Correct. What is? Are there one or two day attacks? Uh, not officially named that, but. 
Technically, yes. Won't most exploits be zero-day exploits? Because that's the nature of them? Most of the effective ones, uh, I would say yes. There are some who aren't, though. There are plenty of websites who just don't upgrade their stuff and leave old things running, particularly... Oh, the Apaches are a very common one that... I thought you were going to say, like, my server. uh, (laughs) All it takes is Googling a a CVE for that version of Apache, and all of a sudden, hey, maybe you find there's a buffer overflow attack for it. Of course. And buffer overflow plus zero-day exploits equals Windows XP. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) Cloudflare... At least Vista. (laughs) No, no, I mean, zero-day exploits. There's a reason why Microsoft has a patch Tuesday, and it's every Tuesday. Um... Anyway, uh... No, that's smart, actually. Sorry? Uh, A patch Tuesday is a smart idea, actually. No, but then everybody waits until the patch Tuesday to test their latest exploits, and then they'll release the exploits on the Wednesday. Well, yeah, but still, it's uh, good to have a... You don't want them to know when you're coming. ...a specific day to fix things. Yes, but then that's when the attackers know that it's gonna... They're gonna try to fix it, so they're gonna hold back the newest stuff, the latest stuff... Okay, I see your argument. Because they know it's coming. it was an unscheduled day. It's like be better. it's like you know or if uh, or non-public scheduled day. Right. It's like if our president went on television and told the country slash world what we were doing in the military, you know, mm-hmm. internationally, and then I don't know somehow we got ambushed. I don't know how, but you know mm-hmm. maybe they found out we were going to attack them anyway. at this time anyway. Ah, uh, so uh, Cloudflare edge servers were running past the end of a buffer. Buffer. Overflow and not ret- and uh, return. Not not buffer overflow attack. That's what this sounds bl- like. At the bu- overflow over the buffer. Overflow over the buffer. They were running past the end of a buffer and returning memory that contained private information such as HTTP cookies, authentication tokens, HTTP post bodies, and other sensitive data. That sounds like a buffer overflow when you're overflowing the bounds of whatever container yeah, that you were in. Yeah, but and then you read the a contents of the attack is more so you're going in and overflowing the buffer yourself. This is kind of just uh, the software itself going it out, just out of bounds of the buffer, which technically, uh, from a very literal standpoint, is a buffer overflow. But from the terminology standpoint, it is not. Why uh, can't this is, people this is always? Just, uh, this is just bad go-to statements that accidentally said go to the wrong address in memory. Go to. Yes, I guess that is a sampler. Yeah, but, but I mean, they could well, check for like they could C. check if their iterators are null it's on, a, it's on a every C thing every loop. In this case, technically regal, but uh, it utilizes C. Ugh. Um, all right. So Cloudflare servers had a bug, and that bug overflowed the buffer, and it mm-hmm. returned and it and it just returned a bunch of private information, and uh, some of that data has been cached. For the avoidance of doubt, Cloudflare customer SSL private keys were not leaked. For the avoidance of doubt. That's an odd phrase. Um, Cloudflare has always terminated SSL connections through an isolated instance of Nginx that was not affected by this bug. Mm -hmm. This issue... uh, Sorry, I'm losing my mind. This issue caused multiple customers' private data to be exposed, requiring many places to reset passwords and delete certain data. So, because it was just returning bits of memory, what, as the response, just leaking into API responses? Yep. Ha! Well, not even API responses, just any traffic on the web. So somebody could be using the reverse proxy somewhere and uh, getting another uh, customer's data that would flow through their reverse proxy. Gotcha. I should have waited. I I need to get better about figuring out when you're going to stop talking so I can (laughs) play my funny sound effects. Anyway, uh, 
well, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's actually kind of funny. Um, so what happened with this? They just fixed it? Uh, so I did not hear anything about a patch. Uh, the, uh, the well, it's not Tuesday precautions, yet. the precautions, they don't do that, but uh, the know, precautions that the, uh, customers, uh, made of resetting, uh, their users' passwords and such, uh, definitely help it. And uh, thankfully, this was discovered by somebody whose job it is to find zero days to point out to the public and not uh, some hacker, as far as we know. How, how do you go about finding zero days? You just have to comb the sites where they're published? You basically just try to hack something without knowing that there is a vulnerability. So you're kind of hammering away at something and seeing if it can happen. Uh, it is a lot easier if you can see the code itself, but sometimes you can't. And you're just kind of uh, shooting in the dark until you find something. Interesting. Just like when you have to wake up in the middle of the night to pee. Uh, if you have that problem. You know, if you drink a lot of water before you go to bed, it could sometimes... Anyway. Um, okay. So that's Cloudflare. Mm -hmm. uh, Dyn. Yes. Uh, so Dyn was the... When Dyn went down a couple months ago... But I guess it was longer than that now. Oh, uh, yeah. It was back in October, I believe. Back in October. When Dyn went down, that actually did take down most of the internet. Or not most, but a, a, a large, large part amount. of the internet. And, and that, uh, it was mostly due to the fact that a lot of places, maybe they understood the significance, but didn't keep it in mind of redundancy. If they had another DNS provider, then there'd be no issue there. But everybody kind of likes Dyn because they're they, fast. They're, just, and... they're pretty long. Jeez. Gotcha. It's um one thing about uh, DNS is there's a specific um, standards in D DNS uh, in the DNS uh, RFCs to uh, back up your records to another DNS provider. Ah, and uh, nobody did that, right? Uh, well, or the important people some, didn't do what we should have, say. But uh, the places that were down, including GitHub, uh, they did not. Ouch. And they could have, GitHub could have even backed it up to GitHub. Um, uh, no, they don't, uh, they don't do DNS. So Dyn was DDoS, Distributed Denial of Service, and that mm -hmm. is when you flood so, a server with Well, this specific case was uh, this, which I should mention were uh, coming from mostly hacked IoT devices. Ah, IoT is Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. So, like, your refrigerator could actually be taking part in a massive denial of service attack against a backbone dns provider that's yes. without without you knowing and it's still keeping your food cold now yep. that's the 21st century <laughs> <laughs> so there's and also uh, another ddos attack uh is what like a synac thing where you engage tcp connections but you never so respond you never acknowledge attack. them okay that's that's a sin attack, oh, sin attack. It, Sorry, on, sin, yeah. it keeps on uh, saying open a connection open a connection but it never closes them right um, so this one was just with ICMP or ping, uh, mm -hmm. messages. Well, not ping, not ping, actually, uh, ping, uh, is, this is technically a, uh, arid pong you're getting back. No, but you're uh, sending a ping, aren't you? Well, normally you'd send a ping and this is a possible response back. Gotcha. Um. Specifically, it's an ICMP type three message, which and is. And ping is what? Type. Uh, ping is, uh, I believe, type 2. Uh, so it was responding with... It was sending a response rather than a request. Sorry. sorry. Um, 2 is actually unassigned. Uh, I thought I 3 believe, was ping. 
uh, no, type three is uh, destination unreachable. So uh, type eight is saying echo, and uh, normally you'd get a type zero echo reply for a ping. And there's also a bunch of other types within there that you can use to help with that. It's things like uh, timestamp and timestamp reply, which uh, is pr important for ping. And um, uh, there's a bunch of other ones that are a bit more used for other things. Uh, anyway. Uh, plenty of deprecated, by the way. Hmm. So the, so the attackers, people's refrigerators and, uh, I don't know, vibrators have Wi-Fi now? Oh, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> people's refrigerators and, and, and smartwatches and vibrators were participating in a massive distributed de uh, denial of service attack where they were sending out responses rather than requests. Right? Is that what you, is that what you said? Yes. And so and the so server was expecting it, a request, but instead it got a response and then, f what, followed the response like a Jedi mind trick? Well, no, inst instead of, uh, normally you, you'd use IP tables to protect against this or some kind of firewall. And when you don't, all of a sudden that's just letting the NICs have all this all these packets being stored and your kernel doesn't know, know what to do with them, really. It doesn't just discard them? It doesn't put, throw them to dev null? No, because it could be that you are supposed to get them, but it, uh, but uh, the, uh, there was some kind of error in. Oh, and it hasn't reassembled the... the request, right? But if you're not also in user space saying that, hey, I am supposed to get this, then it kind of ends up with all of a sudden you just have all these packets in your NIC, and then they, then from there they, um, they did go through and uh, uh, also be able to through that take advantage of the servers in, uh, in more of a uh, not exactly remote code execution way, but in a um, what you uh, it looks similar to a remote code execution attack, but you're not actually executing code; you're just uh, attacking the memory in a similar way. That's very interesting. Some some genius in Eastern Europe thought that up. Uh, they suspect China on this one because oh. they do believe it was uh, state uh, funded, state sponsored, I should say. Oh, it's one of those. Yeah. Like, uh, wasn't there some kind of uh, like? hack on there was some uh, malware in an uh, electrical grid hmm. that was that was also state sponsored by like the US and Israel but I will not talk about that uh, <laughs> because we have went on too many tangents and it explicitly says for me to not talk about that in the notes so uh, it's fine <laughs> uh, <laughs> called it <laughs> yes no it's 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 I don't it's whatever I you know I'm getting burnt out from politics Christian uh, I, I really I you and I both yeah yeah. Uh, it's gonna be I think I got burnt out away a lot sooner than you. It's going to so be a long, <laughs> long eight years. Anyway, um, <laughs> all right. Uh, so that's that's Dine. Uh, mm -hmm. Oh, uh, let's see. So what happened? It made many companies uh, adopt redundancy. That's good, and uh, made the public much more aware of the threats to DNS and the importance of well-built and well-architected DNS. Well, I don't think the public are thinking about that as much as uh, you know well, their website doesn't work. My argument there is uh, all of a sudden you have non-technical people being uh, understanding that hey, DNS is something. That's no, they're not Christian. That what they're saying is my thing is I can't Netflix is buffering. Why is Netflix buffering? Oh, it's fixed now. That's all they're saying. They're not. Well, you'd, you'd they, they won't appreciate the, the fact probe. that they're. Some people can actually understand. Hey, there's this thing failed DNS probe. That must mean uh, that there is some kind of thing called DNS that is not working. I don't know. I I think people. It's it's more of 
the I want my thing and my thing isn't working and now it's fixed and are completely oblivious to the fact that their vibrator was participating in this massive attack anyway. <laughs> so, um, okay, so uh, Dine in, uh, was bought by Oracle recently? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Uh, you, get, you got me on this. Do you like Oracle? Uh, I, I don't know how I feel about them. They are. I mean, uh, they're like the sales force of databases. That's true. And, and that's, so, I don't know if that's good. Yeah. They uh, own Java, and mm-hmm. uh, every time they update Java, they have some kind of BS add-on that they bake into the installer. Uh, and then, of course, Java sucks. Um, yeah. What else? I think that's it. And then they just have those enterprise databases that I hope mm-hmm. Mongo is eating into, since Mongo's worth billions of dollars now. Uh, hopefully they can steal some of Oracle's lunch. But, so mm-hmm. Dyn... Oh, Oracle did buy MySQL. There's that. Oh, yes, and they own MySQL. Right. Uh, well, that, which is, I, I, I thought... I, I was kind of okay with that, because it meant that MySQL was going to live. Kind of like when Disney bought Star Wars, and they were just kind well, of kind of shepherded. Well, now the guys who were the MySQL guys are, have MariaDB, and that seems to have taken off even more for people who are know. comfortable uh, using a database that isn't uh, very corporately sponsored. No, I like my databases artisanal. So uh, this was so bad that Dyn had to sell out, and they sold them sold out to Oracle. I don't know if it was necessarily directed to that. I also have heard uh, rumors that uh, prior to this outage, there was a lot of um, downward uh, trajectory. Interesting. So they were not in a good way um, Mm -hmm. in the first place. Okay. now, what what about DNSSEC? Because there's a lot of talk mm-hmm. about that's the next generation of DNS, which is basically like... I wouldn't a, call it uh, the next generation Well, it's, it's of basically DNS. DNS plus SSL, right? Uh, well, not, not exactly literally, SSL, but conceptually. But no, it's a uh, series of RFCs for more secure DNS protocol. Oh, so it's not about... It's not encrypting traffic or anything like that? That That, that is part of it. There's many parts to it. So fact, what, uh, part of, a, what parts of it aren't in it. SSL or TLS that are there, in DNSSEC? There is, are certificates involved. Uh, I, uh, I have not read through the DNSSEC RFCs myself yet. Uh, that's something that I actually probably will end up doing. Gotcha. Uh, but it is, uh, um, there, there, are, um, there is encryption involved. There, there are things that have identity involved. Uh, so things like signatures are important. Okay. And how long do you think people will act, will it take before that proliferates? Five years? Ten years? Uh, it really depends. It is something that is definitely uh, in more of the technical public view. Well, so is IPv6, but that is, hasn't even really been fully implemented yet. I would yet. say IPv6 has been at least adopted by a lot of the larger companies now, and uh, Facebook is entirely IPv6. Uh, LinkedIn has a big Yeah, but is Cablevision? Is Comcast? They, um, at least for their business customers, are IPv6 now. I do not know about local. Hmm. Interesting. Um, well, I may be getting Fios in the near future. That might be Lucky cool. Lucky you. I um, am jealous. Well, you know, it hasn't happened yet. I just woke up one day and I felt like, you ever feel like you're, you're being mixed? I don't mean mixed like this podcast. I mean, like you're literally in a mixer. Like a, like a food <laughs> I mixer. I have. That's... That's how Maybe I woke up. In Portland. Uh, no, that's how I woke up the day that I left for my trip. I was like, because it's one of those weird things when it intersects with a dream that you're having, and I just like, 
I felt like I was in a metal mixing bowl with this giant paddle coming down. And I woke up, I'm like, what the hell that, is going on? And that some, sounds like something else. <laughs> someone someone was drilling through the uh, you know, foot of concrete floor in my stairwell and uh just uh, just drilling a giant hole, and I'm like, what are you doing? And they go, oh, we're from Verizon. We're putting in uh, ducts for Fios. I'm like, well, oh, nice. that's the best way this could have ended. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that, that is uh, what I would call an optimal outcome. <laughs> but not an optimum outcome, which is the oh, cable service I have now. Anyway, uh, so listen, we're over an hour, and we mm. haven't even got into the CIA stuff. So I think we need to uh, pick up the pace. Okay. Do you want to talk about GitHub and EC2? We did kind of talk about both of them a little bit. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit. I, I guess uh, the main point uh, thing we should do now is uh, kind of the thesis of this is the fact that when you have these single dependencies, these single points of failure, all of a sudden you can, in fact, break the internet, so to speak. Not the Kim Kardashian style. Right. And, and the single um, dependency, don't get lost in the fact that the single dependency may be redundant inside of itself. It's still a single dependency. So even though, right. it, it, well, even though even, S3 even is... Well, what I'm saying is even though S3 is redundant, like, you know, our podcast is being redundantly maintained on Hmm. a single region, though, and that's on a single vendor. Right. And so if you had their own single point of failure there, though, internally, the idea is as long as you kind of uh, uh, distribute the failure in a way that uh, it's self-healing. Right. uh, From their standpoint and from your standpoint as a user of S3, if you have a redundant backup. Uh, those right. are kind of the things you need to avoid these issues. And that's why it's important for all of us to back up our data and everything that we have. And that's why we're happy to a- uh, welcome a new sponsor to Pull Request. That's right. If you go to Carbonite.com, let no. I wish. <laughs> but, you know, if anyone at Carbonite wants to help us out, uh, I will give you a really nice ad read right here uh, from the heart of Brooklyn. Anyway, um, so GitHub, over the last year, GitHub has had a few minor outages upsetting developers everywhere. Including one due to Dyn's outage. Does GitHub have a special relationship with Dyn? No, uh, not that I'm aware of. They were just using Dyn as their DNS provider, and their only DNS provider, at least in uh, America at the time. Gotcha. And this issue uh, is the very large percentage of software that is hosted on GitHub, including for some critical software dependencies. Mm -hmm. Like what, people are linking to GitHub's version of jQuery? And then that goes down, and then well, their site doesn't work. Well, not that. Uh, that that's just bad on everybody's part if they're doing that. People but, do um, though. That's part of the HTML5 boilerplate. Actually, so is a like a Google CDN hosted jQuery. In some prior work of mine, I've had uh, things like uh, Docker containers that uh, used uh, uh, they had some kind of static configuration that would then use ConfD, which is a project created by Google's Kelsey, uh, Kelsey Hightower. And that would be something that I would pull the binary directly off of the GitHub releases page. In fact, there there are a lot of places that take the releases page off of GitHub and just pull that, uh, at at build time, pull that dependency from GitHub as opposed to a different uh, source uh, repository. um, It's not like an apt repo or a uh, deb deb package repo or a uh, RPM or any of those. But when they go to do that, they don't say, and if it fails, go to this mirror. They just assume it'll always work because it's GitHub. and GitHub most, pl- most places don't have um, mirrored source code. Uh, the Apache uh, family of code is really good at actually using GitHub as the mirror and hosting their own Git server. Ah. Well, that's something good for Apache. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, particularly a lot of the newer tools that Apache have put out. Uh, so not Apache the web server, but like Apache Mesos and uh like uh hadoop 
those are, are all kind of like these ones that kind of were born in the uh at least in the um beginnings of the errors of, era of git so it was it made a lot more sense uh particularly since some of these were projects prior to github or prior to github's popularity they would be hosted on their own servers and then as github had its uh, popularity a lot of projects actually would do this where they would just mirror uh to github uh like um I'm not sure if it's uh, the case currently or if it was the um or if it was the case for a while but um uh the, the Linux kernel itself was a mirror onto GitHub uh at least uh years ago and sa same thing with the go source code uh I know as of uh this uh last uh release of go they've made it a push to actually have it uh hosted on GitHub gotcha um so a lot of, right, a lot of stuff is hosted on GitHub. Uh, would you say Apache, they're like the baby boomers, and Nginx are like the Gen Xers, and some, like, Node Axios web servers are the millennials? It's not going to be Node. It's, uh, I'd say the big one there is, uh, there's... What would be the millennials kinda, of web server? There's kind of two. There's Traffic and Caddy. They're trying to compete for that, I would, I would say. A uh, big part of that is uh, automatic uh, uh, SSL through Let's Encrypt. So mm. if you, if it goes to a domain that uh, if it has a request for a domain that it has not got to receive that request before, it'll actually for both of them uh, make a let's encrypt uh, request to uh, get that uh, certificate. Gotcha. Um, well, that sounds very uh, millennial and open sharing, and mm. I'd say of course IIS. That's the greatest generation. <laughs> it's a World War Two generation. The golden oldies. Oh yeah. Back in my, you call that a web server? Back in my day, we were happy to have SHTML. That's also the web server that's technically the most uh, popular on the internet. But that's because of how many uh, how many websites you accidentally add an S to, and all of a sudden you get a website that has a bunch of links that end up trying to install malware. That's funny. Yeah. Also, SHTML. I kind of miss that in the. Uh... I don't. Anyway, we're getting off track. Yes. Uh, let's see. The issue is a very large percentage of software is hosted on GitHub, including... Oh, sorry, I, can't even need to, I need to fix this. Next week, we'll fix this setup. Um, most of GitHub's outages are very minor. Many companies have adopted a local source code hosting or local mirrors. I thought you said mm -hmm. that they, didn't, they don't have local mirrors. Uh, so it's definitely become more popular, like running a uh, GitLabs or GitHub Enterprise, or um, there's some uh, more open source ones that uh, like uh, Cogs or uh, Gogs. And gotcha. Uh, yeah. um, and a lot of software dependencies are also available uh, mirrored. Uh, let's see. Uh, locally hosting version control systems takes a lot of resources, financial infrastructure, employees, and skills. Mm hmm. Well, uh, saying financial resources, infrastructure resources, employees, and the actual skill to manage a uh, version control system. What was the cause of their outage? Uh, so there's the one with Dyne. There's been times where uh, they ha have... Uh, so um, I'd say uh, over the summer, there'd be a few, maybe at, at most an hour-long outage here or there on GitHub uh, due to a lot of database issues, which they then built a lot of tools around their databases, and now those aren't so much of an issue. Gotcha. Um, due to some of the software in GitHub allowing users to bypass the Great Firewall of China, it is another target for state-sponsored attacks. Interesting. So people have had put tools 
up on GitHub that allow uh, Chinese citizens. Uh, of course, the, uh, great, great, wall, great firewall of China, and because of that, uh, and GitHub saying it's against their policy to take that down because of that. At least at the time, I don't know if that's changed. Uh, China would try to DDoS GitHub. That makes sense. <clears throat> it does. Okay. Um, EC2. While it has been several years since any significant problem occurs, has occurred on EC2, this is Amazon's other backbone to their cloud services. Allow only non, they allow only non-stored services in AWS to depend on this. The majority of the companies that host the, quote, in cloud, or that host in, cl- in the cloud, host on ES2. In the pa- EC2. EC2, sorry. In the past, AWS, that was, there was yes. Uh, AWS would have pulled the physical server that is running the Xen-based EC2 instance without notice. This hasn't happened in some time, though. What does that mean? So, uh, year, years and years ago... Uh, How many years and years ago? This is relatively 20, new. This was at least 2010, maybe a little bit later. Okay. Uh, there would uh, be occasional sightings of the physical server that, the, uh, that your EC2 instance was running on. Uh, just kind of being removed, causing a restart of your VM. And there wouldn't be any like, hey, this is routine maintenance notice or something. Oh, they would just, they would just pull it. Gotcha. Well, that wasn't nice, but now it's... I don't know. Uh, but anyway, they don't do that anymore. Um, so that what happened? They had that uh, cascading failure that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so the big solution to this is uh, host servers elsewhere. It's really easy to have, have that, and uh, you can definitely use SDNs to uh, kind of abstract SDNs and certainly uh, cl- automation, whether it be configuration management or orchestration, that will uh, allow you to abstract away th- from uh, the fact that you're hosting on different platforms. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, um, let's see. Uh how, so how do we prevent these? I mean, we we talked about it. you just have to have redundancy, mm-hmm. right? Multiple vendors, yep. multiple regions. That's the moral of the story. Is redundancy needs to also be redundant. Mm-hmm. That's a third dimension of data. Anyway, and that wasn't even a jingle. That was that was right from my my own mouth. Um. So that brings us to the end of the cloud segment now it's funny because amazon's uh amazon's owner the guy who also owns the giant wordpress website called the washington post is working with the cia to build a private intelligence cloud yeah they already have a uh aws gov uh um data center and a whole thing of saying here are servers specifically for government organizations to run on Right, but and... it's it's interesting because the NSA has that two mm-hmm. billion dollar data center in the middle of Utah that I sure. I believe the Death Star has become operational, and uh, this is only six hundred million. But, but first of all, that's the NSA. The government's terrible at sharing amongst well, you know if we one. you want to consolidate the budget. I feel like this is a great opportunity to say why don't you got doesn't the for sure, two billion dollars don't you get happen. some extra capacity. They're not operating at full tilt over there. Uh, they might be. You never know that. But what I will say, though, is the fact that there'd be so much uh, bureaucracy around uh, being able to combine with other organizations in that. And two, I doubt they're using uh, cutting-edge technologies 
throughout everything that they can at least share. I mean, can you write, is there a, a Docker build there might be in Fortran? Some teams, <laughs> there might be some teams that are using uh, very cutting edge or very just uh, powerful technology, while other teams within the same organization might just due to some bureaucracy rules not be allowed to use those same uh, bleeding edge things or anything that is powerful enough for uh to really use this stuff optimally you said do do that means two things <laughs> the intelligence community is about to get the equivalent of an adrenaline shot to the chest this summer, a $600 million computing cloud developed by Amazon Web Service for the Central Intelligence Agency. Over the past year, will begin servicing all 17 agencies that make up the intelligence community. If the technology plays out, as officials envision, it will usher in a new era of spying on people. No, it'll usher in a new era of cooperation and coordination. Well, like what I said. Uh, allowing agencies to share information and services much more easily and avoid the kind of intelligence gaps that preceded the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Another $600 million gone because of 9-11. <clears throat> Why do they need to build a $600 intelligence... Why do they need to build a server... That allows them to share with other agencies that already have a server. Why couldn't they just make a rule and say, so, you do that? This is definitely the case of uh, what tool do you like better or uh, what tool are they more... At some level, you can either have this be a matter of actual preference versus uh, they have better marketing in some cases. Because uh, the government, uh, I think, uh, definitely much longer than most other places, have this... Uh, but, uh, will and have this um, affinity for what I like to call market uh, where, where it's market uh, where, yeah, software that's considered better due to marketing, not due to its actual merit. Oh, like uh, Windows. Yes. Well, that's exactly a commodity like product. Actually, you don't really need to market that. I wouldn't say that. Yeah, it is. Well, kind most of. PCs yeah. ship with Windows. It's a commodity product. Well, it ships with it, yes. But, right. Uh, um, well, that's, that's the not commodity. True, in the it commercial ships space. with it. In the commercial space, that's not true. What do you mean it's not true? You have the option of the default option is Windows. Yes, but in buying, like, uh, particularly just even looking at um, like these uh, real workhorse laptops. Although, while uh, Microsoft has made a uh, very big push to make Lenovo very Windows exclusive by default, uh, so that uh, their ThinkPads are no longer. Uh, there used to be the option to get a ThinkPad with Ubuntu on it. Well, now there's uh, an option already. to get a ThinkPad but, with malware on it, since most Lenovo ThinkPads do ship with malware. Yeah, yeah. But then also, you look at, like, uh, Dell, uh, the XPS 13-inch, uh, there is an, uh, what they call the Developer Edition, and that comes with Ubuntu. That's nice. But anyway, we're getting off track. The point is, Windows yeah. is a commodity product. It's the default option for most PCs that are made. Most, most and most PCs. okay, yes, yeah, fine. And my, a lot of enterprise stuff uh, that is still in the Microsoft world of enterprise. Anyway, um, yeah, but you can that, you have more options there. Yes. Yeah. But Microsoft used to be the best with enterprise. Uh, that, that's marketing. Oh. Okay. Well, and that's market aware. So, for the first time, the agencies within the intelligence community will be able to order a variety of on-demand computing and analytic services from the CIA and the NSA. What's more, they'll only pay for what they use. 
We need to stop doing that. And this version was first outlined in the Intelligence Community Information Technology Expertise Plan, I-C-I-T-E-P, hmm. championed by the Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, and IC Chief Information Officer, Al Tarasweek. Almost five years, so sorry, three years ago. Cloud computing is one of the core components of the strategy to help the IC discover, access, and share critical information in an era of seemingly infinite data. For the risk-adverse intelligence community, the decision to go with a commercial cloud vendor is a radical departure from business as usual. In 2011, while private companies were consolidating data centers in favor of the cloud and some civilian agencies began flirting with cloud variants like email, a sometimes contentious debate among the intelligence community's leadership took place. We decided we needed to buy innovation. I think <laughs> I, that's yeah, possibly the first time they had the other answer in these make-buy decisions. Uh, I don't follow because, you Because in, they've, they used to do so much internal stuff. Rather than saying, you know, there's this commercially available product, why don't we at least start with that? Sure, and part of me also has to wonder if this is what AWS was gunning for when they uh, created uh, AWS Gov, their data centers for specifically government organizations. And it sounds like this one is uh, one specifically geared towards the CIA. And I would imagine this was brought to them by saying, hey, we've got this thing that a bunch of other government organizations are using, everything from the Small Business Administration to uh, the Parks and Recreations Administration and uh, uh, Steve Harvey with the Urban uh, Community Administration. Steve Harvey? That was Trump's Family uh, feud, Steve for... Harvey, king of comedy? Yes. You, you know what question he was asking himself when he decided that appointment. That's Steve Harvey? The real, like, morning yes. radio show in Atlanta, Steve Harvey? Yes. Wow. Well, you know what question Trump was asking himself when he decided the urban administration goes to him. I thought you didn't want me to get political, Christian. No, but it's really hard to pass up that one. Anyway, is that is that data really secure in the cloud? The CIA is convinced it is, until it's not, and then, of course, you'll get another letter saying, oops. Actually, no, you so, won't get those letters because it's the CIA. They just won't tell you. So there's always going to be bugs in computing no matter what. It's just uh, mathematically impossible. And... Uh, with this, no, uh, with the right agile practices, you can in write bug-free code every time. Limit the bugs <laughs> is the actuality, because there are things be that... being uh, facetious. That, that, well, maybe it's not in the code that you wrote specifically, but it's in code you depend on, uh, specifically uh, with like VMs. Uh, for a, a while, you look at uh, things like... Uh, this isn't the case in Zen. Zen has its own thing, which is what AWS runs in. But if you look at KVM, which is something that uh, a lot of the competitors, uh, Google, uh, DigitalOcean, uh, believe Linode, they all use KVM. There is a kernel thing that is also not necessarily used for KVM, but also used in uh, regular user space memory. It's called uh, kernel same page memory merging. And it uh, what it does oh, is it so... takes two page tables that look the same and merge them together. And there can be a bug where uh, two different VMs have their pages merged together, and then all of a sudden they're sharing uh, memory. Gotcha. They're, well, they're, you know, but who... with this saying that this is just for the CIA, that specific bug kind of goes away. Right. Well, but... unless it's like two different teams in the CIA that shouldn't have clearance for each other. There was to somebody who worked for the CIA who managed to access a lot of information. His name. Mm -hmm. Was snowed.
Yes. Anyway, um, that's why security is paramount because they don't want that happening again. Mm-hmm. The IC cloud will quote be accredited and compliant with IC standards. Well, I assume that their server, their current servers were. I assume their current offerings were, but that, than, what their standards weren't likely, good enough. Uh, so one thing, while I was in uh, DevOps Days Baltimore, which I was in uh, earlier this week, and there are, do happen to be a lot of government organizations as well as government... Uh, oh, I forgot to ask you about that. I'm sorry. There. Oh, no worries. And uh, with this, compi- compliance is a big concern for them. And in fact, I did come across a team who happened to have uh, written an entire suite of tools for one particular configuration management software that does do this compl- uh, like compliance testing. So you can write what looks like unit code unit testing code uh, to say, it, uh, assert that this is this thing, otherwise it, error, because then you are not compliant. Expect one Snowden proof server. I don't know. Yes, basically. Um, yeah, but the problem well, is, is that they have so many people with these clearances that it's hard to keep track of what everybody's doing and limit the access of everybody. Right. And that's an attempt that even uh, larger organizations have to sometimes worry about this because, you know, like you don't want a company... Um, so Google's a good example. You don't want a company who can uh, have anyone just access anybody's search history. Right. You have to have certain clearance for that. Oh, I thought you were going to keep going. Oh, no, sorry. Okay. Um, let's see. It says a senior state official is familiar with the cloud. It will, for example, be able to handle sensitive government information, classified information. Anyway, that's about it. Um, but that was a very nice transition between... Amazon, AWS, and the CIA. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you, we're at about an hour 20, do, would you want to take a quick break and talk about Martin? You mean O'Malley? Yes, Martin O'Malley. Someone who sounds like... <laughs> well, it's called O'Malley. I know. Sure, well... Okay, you want to talk about um, O'Malley really quickly? Or do you want to... Yeah, for, for our listeners who haven't heard about O'Malley before, O'Malley is a uh, program that we're working on that will allow us to basically say, can I talk, can I talk, I need the floor, and what that does is peer-to-peer messaging that will then do an election and say, okay, now I have the floor, or Eric has the floor, Tyler has the floor, and we can speak without interrupting the other person, or persons. And uh, with this, it's uh, networking and get around a lot of uh, issues around routers and can be using an SDN, and however, there are still issues around running an SDN through private routers because routers do not like to expose uh, n- networks in a uh, bi-directional way that easily. SDN is, of course, uh, software-defined network. Correct. And, and why don't with routers, this, um, I mean, isn't that at a lower level than what the router cares about? They came it, it's, no, it's what the router's dealing with. The router's at the lowest level can deal with, which is hardware, and then everything up above it to IP. And in some cases, uh, transport as well. And uh, along with this, though, uh, it, uh, the way it's actually supposed to uh, work is you dial out to a uh, master server, which is running somewhere in uh, the cloud. Uh, in my specific case, it's DigitalOcean. And then it dials out to the server. It says, okay, now here is your uh, SDN configuration. And then the problem, though, is then getting the peers to populate across different routers because routers are cranky in this case. What do you mean So cranky? that's where I am right now with O'Malley, and I'll be debugging that. What do you mean cranky? Uh, routers do not like that bidirectional traffic without you configuring it in some way. There are ways to get around that that I am actually currently working on to say I don't want to configure a router, I want to be able to run the SDN. I have 
knowledge of what subnets to build on. And so then what I'm actually doing is just sending the Ethernet. So the way this uh, SDN particularly works is using VXLAN as its backbone. And what that is is uh, encapsulating all of your actual IP layer pack packets in UDP packets. So that way, what you're actually sending over are UDP packets that then get unpacked and treated as an IP packet. Now internally, are you using IPv4 or IPv6? IPv4 at the moment, I do have it uh, easy enough that uh, it's a matter of configuration to say IPv6. I mean, I guess you don't really need it because you're going to be fewer than that many peers in the UK. There's a, there are some complications with IPv6 though because there is a lot more to IPv6 than IPv4. Well, IPv4 you can look at as this kind of an address spacing thing, and otherwise the that layer of network is very simple. Uh, the IPv6 has a bit more to it than just saying I have a host and a port, uh, or I just have a host in some cases. There are certain nuances to IPv6 that are a bit more complicated. Gotcha. Um, so you've hit a snag. Yes, uh, with the routers, which uh, I'll just debug and hopefully I can get around What's this easily. Uh, it's just that it doesn't like uh, the idea of sending and receiving IP packets uh, willy-nilly. Uh, well, I should say UDP packets, technically. It's thinking, oh, hey, this port isn't publicly exposed, and uh, the problem then is you're also natting internally to say, while you do have a certain, certain one public IP address that's coming out from the router, you have a bunch of private IP addresses that, uh, which is part of why to say, uh, say SDN, is abstracting away from that in the software, so you can write the software really simple. But then uh, SDN's doing all the work to say, all right, I, I know I'm this IP address behind the router, and, and I'm this IP address in front of the router, and I want to have this communication across them, and it's a lot of work to get that, and that's where I'm at right now. Gotcha. Well, if you uh, would like some help, let me know. Absolutely. Cool. I'll probably come up with some excuse about why I can't do it, but no. Uh, no, I'm of course happy to help you, and then uh, we get to work on the fun part, which is making it look pretty. So, mm -hmm. um, be excited for that while you tell me that nobody cares about it. <laughs> oh, the joys of web development. I've only been doing it for 15 years. <laughs> uh, actually, I mean, I remember making something in 2000 in Microsoft Word. Like, Microsoft Word had a, uh, a web page thing. Well, there's export to HTML, which was testing. yeah, and they had a a really bad WYSIWYG editor. That uh, well, isn't that all of uh, Word? I mean, I mean, yes, but it like it looked right, it looked really good in the WYSIWYG editor, and then you opened it up in even Internet Explorer, and it didn't know what to do. Yep. Yep. Yeah, but uh, if you did live in the Word plus Internet Explorer universe, you were actually allowed to embed fonts before people who were using other web browsers. Oh, that's right. Yes. Um, you had to use this very old program to do it, but it worked anyway. Okay. Uh, do you want to talk about the CIA or do you want to do a part two? I think we should do a part two. Uh, this has been a rather long one, and it's getting late. I mean, we have been gone uh, for three weeks, but this could be a three-hour show. Uh, Triple album. Let's not do that. Um, all right, how about we uh, just... We've kind of talked about bits and pieces of the CIA. How about we talk about uh, certain topics that we haven't actually hit yet, like uh, Weeping Angel. Weeping Angel is a fake off. This is some Alex Jones stuff. 
For those of you who don't know, hmm. Alex Jones is a rabid conspiracy theorist who makes a lot of money. He makes a lot of money with his info wars. Well, it's kind of like uh, that book, uh, 1984. Ah, uh, we're closer to Brave Wells. New World with our Selma and uh, self-indulgence. But well, there's that yeah. too. Actually, but... we might actually we may be in an evil kind of mix between the two of them. But anyway, uh, where was I going with this? Oh, Alex Jones. Yeah, no, he's you know he has been talking about this stuff for a very long time. Uh, with his, the government's always spying on you, people. I don't understand. I don't understand why you can't understand. You got to put tape over the cameras on your laptop. Like and uh, it's hard. Well, hey, even Zuckerberg does that. He's part. he's hard to take. Seriously. Joseph Comey does it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you should do it, and then or else I, yeah. I I try to. In fact, I do do it on my personal but, laptop. You know, Alex Jones also says uh, the government's been raising radioactive cows for twenty five years. Like, you can't. It's hard to take seriously. Well, you you don't know if that's true. Or not. <laughs> he could be right. Well, this is one of those things that's right up his alley, and he is right. And if we could create some kind of successful media venture like he has, oh man, that would be great. Anyway, um. So, a weeping angel places a target device in a fake-off mode so that the owner falsely believes the TV or other device is off when it's on. In the fake-off mode, the TV operates as a bug, recording conversations in the room and sending them over the internet to a covert CIA server. Hmm. Yes, so when you turn off your TV... I mean, most modern TVs (laughs) really never turn off anyway. Most modern electronics never really turn all the way off Yeah, like, uh... I don't know. Apple TV is one that I have, and it just does not actually turn well, it's off. Well, not an actual is... television, though. No. Well, it actually, it is for me. Aside from the, aside from the actual display. That's what I meant. It's it not is... the... Oh, okay, because it no, is everything else. we're talking about, like, Samsung smart TVs, or the TV, you know. I'm sure mm-hmm. this is also... It, that... Well, that's basically, that's basically Apple TV with a display. Oh, right. Right. Anyway... WikiLeaks says that uh, the CIA has exploits available for this type of stuff in most embeddable systems. And embeddable systems are everywhere. They're the things in the Internet of Things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They were, it, it could be a car. It could be a Toyota car. It could be a Toyota car of a journalist who was reporting on the CIA in 2014 was surprisingly killed when his accelerator got stuck in his Toyota something, Camry, whatever. Hmm. Yeah, and they could do that remotely. So it's really, um, I don't know, they can listen to you, they can spy on you. I mean, this is stuff people have been saying for years, and they tell you you have a tinfoil hat, and then they find out, oh, wait, it's actually true, and they flip out. Well, maybe the argument is also you don't know how long it's been true. It could be that you were saying this beforehand. I or, mean, 10 yeah, years ago, I was talking about Echelon. No, no. Echelon was yeah. the, you know, we're, we're spying on your phone calls and we're logging you and putting you in lists. People yep. say, oh, you're crazy. Um, you're oh, you're yeah. out of your mind. And then Snowden happens. And the, the, the biggest excuse was like such a 20th century excuse of why would the government waste time? Why would they have somebody in an office look at me personally? No, it's computers. It's, it's data centers. It's clusters. It's, it's, it's and algorithms and risks and weights and stuff like that. It's not, there's no people. That's why they can do this to everybody. And, you know, I was, I was crazy. It was a tinfoil hat. And then this happens. And uh, I don't know. The conspiracy hmm. theorists yeah. were right. Yeah, it does seem well, and you don't you, like. Uh, it's always interesting if you look at like uh, literature and uh, 
movies and things like that that they kind of have this almost a forecasting of exactly like the always that fantasy quote-unquote fantasy policing nation that then does turn out to be the reality some point down the road like i said 1984 and all of these other things that have been out there um like uh i'm a big fan of the book the giver uh there's one i read in middle school but i still love it uh where uh it's it is a utopian society more so than that than a policing state but then they have all these uh all these people who basically are the leaders they make the decisions like a government they're there keeping an eye on every little thing making sure you don't uh differentiate from the path gotcha and we'll be able to do that with cameras everywhere and centralized spying and and analytics i mean imagine a data center of watson's Mm -hmm. when watson can already they it already has fantastic natural language processing that's why it won jeopardy but of course you know it's a computer how can it not win I yeah, want to see Watson <laughs> against Kirk Cameron from that 1995 Disney Channel movie where he gets connected to the internet in his brain. He gets, like, struck by lightning or something like that. Which one's this? Uh, not Tron. No, <laughs> Disney Channel. Kirk Cameron, oh. after Growing Pains. Who that? Kirk Cameron? It was on Growing Pains. It was a sitcom in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s. It was very influential in color. And then he is actually a really big Jesus freak. Anyway, he was in this uh, Matrix company. <laughs> I think it's like something like the, the com- some computer, the something. Uh, whatever. Uh, I don't anyway. know. You, 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 you anyway, no, the, the premise is that he gets connected, his brain gets connected to the internet. But that was the internet in 1995. That was before Wikipedia. So, I don't mm-hmm. know. Anyway. Before Google was Google. Yes. Uh, the FBI and CIA also have a device called a Stingray, which can simulate cell phone networks. And uh, so your phone can connect to it whenever it's deployed, and you won't notice because it'll just say that it's connected to whatever cell phone vendor that you have. And mm-hmm. uh, they, all of your traffic just goes right through that. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, Enemy of the State, another, uh, oh, oh, well, sometime in the 2000s, I believe, but older movie. Might have movie. actually been 2000. Yeah, I think so. Uh, the whole thing with uh, doing the uh, Faraday cage of keeping your phone in a uh, Lay's potato chip bag. That is, is that an actual thing to uh, keep the government from accessing your phone. That said, and it basically connects, uh, disconnects all connections to your well, phone. You know, what a tin, you know why people wear tinfoil hats? It's supposedly a Faraday cage. Around your but head? But it's not exactly. So... Sorry, hold on one second. Uh, Thank you for being a friend. Travel down the road and back again. Okay, let's talk about the broader message of this whole thing um, called Vault 7. Vault 7 is a series of WikiLeaks releases on the CIA and methods and means that they use to attack, hack, monitor control, and even disable systems ranging from smartphones to TVs to even digital implants, or sorry, dental implants. So, hmm. there's always that, you know, I can, oh, I, I could pick up the radio on my, on my filling. Well, now if you might be able to. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, I mean, so far, the first <laughs> release in the Vault 7 series has been titled Year Zero, and includes a number of breaches, or branches, sorry, on the CIA's Intelligence Operations Center and their projects. Hmm. 
So Year Zero on Wikipedia, sorry, WikiLeaks, has a very good wiki article on Year Zero, and they break down the whole organizational chart of the CIA, which you can look at. Uh, just search Year Zero WikiLeaks. You'll find it. And uh, then you'll be on some other list, but whatever. You could use Tor, like we said in our Dark Web episode. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, I did not. And, and because we're talking about this and they know, they know that it's me, it's going to be uh, very easy to find out. Anyway, the point is, um, Year Zero introduces the scope and direction of the CIA's global covert hacking program, its malware arsenal, and dozens of zero-day weaponized exploits against a wide range of U.S. and European company products, including Apple's iPhone, since Steve Jobs has said, uh, Google's Android, and Microsoft Windows, and even Samsung TVs, which are turned into covert microphones. So... One thing I want to say about that is it's really funny anytime you look at these like how to be secure things that are like serious how to be secure things, not the usual change your password, blah, blah, blah stuff, but like the actual like, hey, there's these issues with software that you need to fix kind of stuff to be secure. One of the biggest things is always avoid using an Android phone unless you know Linux very well. Why and is that? That is because it's kind of like the uh, the Toyota Camry theft issue. Uh, it is the most popular car or was the most popular car at least. And because of that, there was a lot of attacks. Mm. Uh, well, uh, there were a lot of uh, burglaries out of it. And so likewise, with Linux being the most popular... Um, oh, like the 96 Camry was the most uh, stolen car? Yeah, and specifically, uh, Android is uh, both nationally and globally the most uh, popular phone. It uh, has the most uh, attacks. Ah, that makes sense. That's why. That's a big reason why Apple hasn't been attacked that much, because they don't have... I mean, relatively, now as they've reached peak market share, they will start to be attacked more, mm-hmm. but it was because they were only right. like 5% of the market. And... Yeah. Yep. Yep. Anyway, um, okay, year zero. Since 2001, or year one, the CIA has gained political and budgetary preeminence over the NSA. The CIA found itself building not just its now infamous drone fleet, wow, but a very different type of, was that ever, was that ever on American Dad? Um, I don't know. What the drone? Yeah. CIA drones? Yeah, probably. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but if... there was one where they uh, they uh, quote unquote kidnap a drone. Ah, right, right. Uh, but a very different type of covert global spanning force. Its own substantial fleet of hackers or techno experts. The agency's hacking division, hacking, freed it from having to disclose its often controversial operations to the NSA. Quote or parentheses. Its primary. Bureaucratic rival. Ooh. It's like Yale versus Princeton. In order to draw... <laughs> in order to draw on the NSA's hacking capability, uh, capacities. It's getting late, I'm sorry. Uh, by the end of 2016, the CIA's hacking division, which formerly falls under the agency's Center for Cyber Intelligence, or CCI, which offered an a undergraduate program that I was looking at uh, many years ago. Um... But they drug test. Uh, had over 5,000 registered users and produced more than 1,000 hacking systems, Trojans, viruses, and other, quote, weaponized malware. Such is the scale of the CIA's undertaking that by 2016, its hackers had utilized more code than that had been used to run Facebook. The CIA had wow. created, in effect, its own NSA with even less accountability and without publicly answering the question as to whether such a massive budgetary spend on duplicating the capacities of a rival agency could be justified. Wow. And what's interesting about the whole generating so much code thing that I always think of, though, is 
was it that was it that they were just writing a crap ton of code or were they just writing uh good quality code i mean they might have measured the code by or the quality by how many lines that you wrote in a day that's so old school yeah like so so corporate that's i mean like i said they still use fortran come on only on their legacy stuff. They, they <laughs> used the bleeding edge of Java as in 1999. Hey, no. The bleeding edge of Java was like 2005. Okay, that's true. Yeah, and the J- Java still puts out new stuff every once in a while. I, and I took the 2005 crap. AP Java exam. It was the first year that they offered oh, it in Java. Java. Was my first lang- Java was my first language. It is uh, okay. <laughs> Mine was Pascal because I'm, because I'm an old man. <laughs> uh, I remember we had to run Turbo Pascal in DOS. Wow. Yeah, Borland Turbo Pascal. Wow. I know. That, uh, that really dates case you. Case <laughs> insensitive. Oh, I was hoping you'd say Casey and the Sunshine Band. But... Why? That would okay. really date me. I don't even. <laughs> um, there's a hidden Casey and the Sunshine Band song in Microsoft and Card in 1996. There, that also date me. That dates me. Um. Let's see. Uh, CIA had created its own. Yeah. Um, so with this vast capability, they're able to inject themselves into many things, like most appliances, like we said, embedded systems. Um, and they're able to do this before any encryption is applied. So when you do have encrypted traffic, you can't really listen to it because you get the encrypted stuff, the garbage. Um, but they just inject themselves somewhere in the stack before you send it out. Well, before it gets encrypted, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, w- one that I find that kind of interesting with is Telegram, which the argument there that uh, seems so interesting is the fact that they have this bounty for decrypting their software and uh, definitely uh, uh, pose themselves as this uh, un- un- unhackable uh, messenger. And uh, arguably, it still technically is unhackable from the standpoint of encryption. But the CIA just kind of found the easiest way around that. Which was how? Uh, to just hack it before it gets encrypted itself. So there's kind of like just one of those, well, instead of trying to bust through the wall all the time, why don't we just go around the wall? Yes. That's smart. See, and this is why... I totally am against the government trying to make encryption illegal. Because if you're smart enough, you can get around it. Like the CIA. Mm -hmm. But because the CIA doesn't share their data with the FBI, the FBI thinks that encryption is terrible. That's actually really funny, if you think about it. Well, you look at the people who really want to get uh, encryption illegal, and it's the people who don't understand how even... uh... They don't, they don't even know, like, when you hit the power button, what actually uh, happens. Okay, if I put a, a ribbon around this safe and the government says, take the ribbon off and unlock the safe, I have to do it. But, you know, if yeah. I go to this website and it's encrypted, it's, like, completely the same thing. Anyway, that, yeah. and that's a real argument that people had in, in Congress because they're... Oh, I know. They're, in the, uh, they're from the old world, the before computers, BC. Yep. And there's, then there's uh, Forrest Gump, I mean, Jeff Sessions. No, Jeff Sessions is like 30 years older than Forrest Gump. Well, that, it's not an age thing. <laughs> it's a culture thing. <laughs> okay. Anyway, and the, uh, the CIA hoarded vulnerabilities or zero-day zero exploits. In the wake of Edward Snowden's leaks about the NSA, the U.S. technology industry secured a commitment from the Obama administration I miss him, that the executive would d- disclose an on- 
uh, sorry, the executive would disclose on an ongoing basis rather than hoard serious vulnerabilities, exploits, bugs, or zero-day exploits to Apple, Google, Microsoft, and other U.S.-based manufacturers. Serious vulnerabilities are not, dis or not disclosed to the manufacturers place huge swaths of the population in critical infrastructure at risk to foreign intelligence or cyber criminals who independently discover or hear rumors of the vulnerability. If the CIA can discover such vulnerabilities, so can others. Wait, with this rule, doesn't that mean they have to disclose it to these companies? Then how'd they get away with this? Because they don't have any accountability. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> That's, they just did. Yeah. No, that, that, that's oh, no, exactly the cyber, the case, it was yeah. Cyber Command with the Air Force. That's what it was. That was the, that was the undergrad program that they offered. And they, hmm. actually, had, uh, they actually had classes in cyber warfare because it's through the Air Force. Oh, yeah. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, if I wanted to have uh, a buzz cut. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that'd be so funny. Yeah. I mean, well, I, mean, I, I have a friend that went through the Air Force, either. and he's doing all right. Uh, and he actually lives in Los Angeles, and I saw him while I was in California. Anyway, um, so the U.S. government's commitment to the vulnerabilities equities process came after significant lobbying to U.S. technology companies who risk losing their share of global market over real and perceived hidden vulnerabilities. The government stated it would disclose all pervasive vulnerabilities discovered after 2010 on an ongoing basis. Uh, but they didn't. Year Zero documents show that the CIA breached the Obama administration's commitments. Many of the vulnerabilities used in CIA's cyber arsenal are pervasive, and some may already have been found by rival intelligence agencies or cyber criminals. As an example, specific CIA malware in Year Zero is able to penetrate... I mean... Oh, I have to put the mixer back up. Sorry. <laughs> that means two things. There we go. Uh, able to penetrate... I mean, that was... Yeah, sorry. Uh, it is getting late. Uh, able to penetrate, infest, and control both the Android phone and iPhone software that runs or has run presidential Twitter accounts. The CIA attacks this software by using undisclosed security vulnerabilities, or zero days, possessed by the CIA, but if the CIA can hack those phones, and so can everyone else who has obtained or discovered the vulnerability. As long as the CIA keeps vulnerabilities concealed from Apple and Google, who make the phones, they will not be fixed, and the phones will remain hackable. A very interesting place that we're in. Mm -hmm. Because if the phone is too secure, then the government can't spy on you. Terrorists, you know, want to make sure that we're safe. If you're not doing anything wrong, you've got nothing to fear. But <laughs> um, if, I don't know. So we have kind of an, we, the government was working against science and technology and privacy because they wanted to spy on everybody and have their finger in everyone's pies. Just like the Obama administration was found to have wiretaps with foreign leaders a couple of years ago. Um, mm -hmm. And possibly Donald Trump, but who knows. Um, let's see. Uh, malware, same vulnerabilities. The same vulnerabilities exist for the population at large, including the U.S. Cabinet, Congress, top CEO, system admins, sysadmins, sorry, security officers, and engineers. By hiding these security flaws from manufacturers, Apple and Google and the CIA, uh, like Apple and Google, the CIA ensures that it can hack everyone at the expense of leaving everyone hackable. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's hard to find words for it, but, oh boy. I don't know what to, I, I don't know what to say. Yeah. Other than we may, we may be more like Russia than you think, comrade. Yes, us capitalist pigs. Us capitalist pigs actually do quite well, and McDonald's is pretty good burger. I can't wait for McDonald's to be no humans working. Yeah? Yeah, that'll be just I just so saw great. a sign through... Uh, All of a sudden, I'll go to McDonald's. Oh. There'll still be people in there. They'll just yeah, be trying to break the computers. Customers. They're just customers. No, but the customers they're, will be trying to break the computers. Oh, yeah, of course. It's like uh, the self-checkout line. In fact, uh, there there was a, uh, there, I forget, uh, one of those usual, uh, just those companies that just find their way into everybody's Facebook news feeds, like a BuzzFeed type thing. And uh, it was basically, can I spend an entire day uh, void of humans and only interacting with robots? So they went around uh, like, a, like a CVS uh, self-checkout and uh, to the Yotel so you have uh, their baggage being uh, handled by robots. And uh, then they went to a restaurant that was kind of like one of those old style, um, forget the word, but uh, it's basically like yeah, you just open up a, uh, a, a window and the food you wanted is in there. This is a little more, uh, more advanced where it's actually like assembling your food in the back through a conveyor belt. But then it's just you open up a window and An automat. your food's there. Yes, automat. That's the word. That used to be really big. That used to yeah. be really big back in the 40s. There's, there's one in the 20s. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the 20s is in the street right. uh, somewhere. Interesting. Well, yeah. there's, here's one, on a funny note, here's one thing to end on. But it's, I mean, it you know, can only be so funny because it also has to deal with the CIA. There are lots of technical details on the CIA's software development process for espionage tools in the documents dumped by WikiLeaks earlier this week, many of which we'll take a closer look at in the coming. That's not us. That's Ars Technica. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I am reading this from ArsTechnica.com. Thank you guys for the content. Uh, I'm not paying you. Uh, the ads. Ads pay you. Uh, anyway, uh, but there's one thing that's immediately clear from pursuing the personal pages of CIA engineering development group software developer... This is a really long sentence. Uh, from perusing the personal pages of CIA Engineering Development Group, software developers that were included in the dump, colon, they are like the rest of us in tech. The liberal use of internet memes, animated GIF images, that's the right way to say it, as well as gamer and pop culture references sprinkled throughout the serious business of building software to support CIA's espionage mission, makes this leak look like a peek inside any random development team's internal wiki. Oh, absolutely. That makes total sense. How many were they on, how many were they on uh, Agile or Kanban? Uh, probably various team to team in the CIA. I imagine there's some who are just straight up waterfalling it all day, which sucks for them. Yeah, it's very government, uh, though. I imagine they do it very by the book, though, too, with their project management. They're not like one of these places who are like, let's use bits and pieces of Agile and then kind of bend it to our needs, uh, which is uh, more and more seems to be the common thing to yeah, do. Yeah, but then you get lost. No, uh, not true. Uh, you have places that are just like, maybe they're not pointing their stories or something. Well, one of the, in the, one of the lost episodes of pull requests that we'll have to do one day, in California, I was going to have on uh, a Scrum Master and an Agile expert. And uh, to talk about, and, and who goes to conferences and actually makes more than a lot of developers. Um, Do they work for Pivotal? No. 
No. Uh, ThoughtWorks? I'm, I don't know. He works for some company in Orange County, but the point is that um, he has a lot. To, he knows a lot about project management, management and that kind of stuff. Anyway, um, CIA developers used movie and game references for a number of project names, including Ricky Bobby, a backdoor oh, for intelligence God. collection designed to be dropped from a USB stick inserted by a CIA asset named for Will Ferrell's role in Talladega Nights. Oh, that is so awesome. Ricky Bobby sent its data to a listener called Cal, named for John C. Riley's character in that film. Ricky Bo- It's Magic Man and El Diablo. Ricky Bobby's teammate and friend. An implant mm-hmm. for Apple iOS devices effective on iOS 7 through 8.2. That's not good. I mean, I mean it's good. It's not valid anymore. Is named Dr. Boom after a character from the card game Hearthstone, Heroes of Warcraft. <laughs> Then there's the .NET, a VMware ESXi virtual machine host that acts as a virtual live internet environment for software testing. Its domain names will be familiar to many gamers. Uh, but I don't, I don't game. A- Aperture, oh, well. Aperture Labs, Black yeah, Mesa, okay. Serif yep. Industries, Umbrella yep. Corp. Yep. It's weird that these are... Uh... And it makes it's kind sense. of how the fiction becomes the reality. Yeah. Rainmaker is a collection of, and that's not to be confused with Rain Man. It was someone closer to who I am. Uh, Rainmaker <laughs> is, Dustin Hoffman is Jewish. Uh, <laughs> uh, Rainmaker is a collection and network survey tool developed by the CIA that is disguised as a music player on a USB stick. That's the cool. documentation page for the project includes an animated GIF from a video for Fat Joe's Make It Rain with President Obama's head edited in. That's pretty cool. <laughs> One, I, I want to be, be mad, but I'm loving this. <laughs> One developer shared his dream list of new project names based on, quote, mostly oblique references to things I like, TV tropes, names that amuse me, and situations or phrases at work encoded in tool name esque obscurity. Uh, I mean, still, I I just love the idea of Ricky Bobby and Cal. That is great. Uh, I hope there's like some part awesome where awesome McTool goes, name. If you ain't first, you're last. Awesome McTool McTool name. Hmm. Uh, humongous Mecca. Literal genie, monster clown, discharge tempest, and more. Uh, mendicant engineer reserved for the next tool delivered during a government shutdown. Starving weasel, reference to the weird Al song Albuquerque. Hey, you've got weasels on your face. And of course, this is yeah, sorry. This what? is great, actually. Wow. And of course, there's the usual workplace shenanigans. Do I have like happy music? Do I like? Uh... Is that? Mm. I mean, whatever. I mean, that's the song I mean, happy. That's I guess happy music. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, and then of course there's the usual workplace shenanigans. The CIA's engineering development group piloted the use of a number. Managing development in 2013 and adopted Atlassian's confluence project documentation. That also meant giving every developer who used the system a home page. Okay. Um, 
Some developers never added content to their personal pages, but one decided to hunt down those who left editing rights open on their homepage and deface them with images, including animated GIFs from the anime series Trigon. Hmm. I don't even know what that one is. <laughs> I don't know either, but that's... All the, all the news that's fit to print. So, that brings an end to the CIA madness for this week. Um, is there anything you want to add? I think that's good. I think it's pretty good. Well, Zencaster said we actually did a three-hour show. Triple did album. Uh, did we really? I, I don't think we did. We, but... I think we did a two-hour show. Double album. Oh, yeah, we did a three-hour show. Just like the best podcast in the universe, No Agenda. Double Mer? No, No Agenda. Oh, Double Mer. No, No Agenda. Yeah, I think we went, uh, we, we went Double Mer. Double Mer? Oh, right. It's, yeah. pla- it's, it's past platinum. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so Christian, I guess, uh, do you approve this week's pull request? Looks good to me. Well, join us next week when hopefully Tyler will be back and uh, we can continue the CIA madness or maybe not. Who knows? We'll figure it out. But we will be here next week. I promise. And uh, hopefully you will be too. So until then, uh, let's hit merge. This has been the Pneumonium Production. The views and opinions expressed on Pull Request do not necessarily reflect those of Pneumonium LLC or its subsidiaries.